Today is lesson seven in our current lesson series on Sunday mornings entitled Revolution, Christ Over Culture. If you've been here, you know that we are uh, canvassing the New Testament story of the book of Acts. We're looking at it in great detail. In lesson seven, we're going to arrive this morning at the fifth chapter, and we're going to cover maybe the first half or so of that fifth chapter. If you were here last weekend for our previous lesson, you know that things began to change rather drastically in the narrative of the book of Acts. Now, the change was a bit temporary. Uh, actually, in the previous two lessons, the change was a bit temporary. But, however, it is going to be something that is a common occurrence throughout the remainder of the narrative of Acts. We know that in hindsight, having studied uh, most of us, having read the book of Acts at some point in time in our lives, having heard it thought, taught through and preached about. But we want to look at the... Uh, the perspective that the uh, real-life believers would have had as they walked this journey. We begin with a difficult scenario. Their very leader had been crucified, but then he'd been resurrected, right? And then he walks with them for some 40 days, and then all of a sudden, in mid-conversation, he just disappears and he's taken up into heaven. But he gives them a promise that he is up to something. And I'm not going to give full details of everything we've covered, but you are welcome to go back through the app or through the YouTube channel and cover all those details if you missed any weeks. But we know that he left them specific details to stay in Jerusalem for a specific purpose, a specific promise, if you will, that would come from the Father. And we know that 10 days after the ascension of Jesus, the believers experienced that promise on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was the Jewish feast that celebrated the giving of the law. It celebrated what happened on Mount Sinai with Moses as uh, God's people had been brought out of Egypt and they're introduced to this whole new culture that they were uh, born into but not born into because they were born as slaves in Egypt. And then after that Pentecost experience, we know that a, that a multitude of people join forces with what we now call the church. We literally go in a day's time from 120 believers in Acts chapter 2 to the end of Acts chapter 2 with the number of believers being approximately 3,120, some believe to be even more. The next chapter opens up. We've seen a, a, a panoramic view, if you will, of the church and its operation. There's been very little specific individual nature that Luke has brought out in his writing of the narrative of the book of Acts. But then all of a sudden in the third chapter, that begins to change. We look in there at a specific situation. That specific situation resolves, revolves around Simon Peter and John, two of the more prominent disciples of Jesus, and a lonely, hopeless beggar who was laying at the temple gate at the hour of prayer there in Jerusalem. And this interaction was one that would have been common for their day. The crippled beggar had desired some alms. He had desired some money to buy himself some groceries with. There was no welfare program. There was no way that he could get any help and obviously no way that he could work to provide for himself. So his only hope was the mercy of the Jews who were going to the temple at the hour of prayer. And so he asked for uh, some alms, some good deeds, some 
financial help from Simon Peter and John. And they look at him and they make this bold declaration. They say, we don't have silver and gold. And that's the last thing a beggar would ever want to hear. We don't have silver and gold. But that statement would evolve into the most powerful words this crippled beggar had ever heard. It was completely and totally transforming to his life. They said, but such as we have, we give to you, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. So if you can picture this scenario in your head, because we're still kind of playing off of that scenario, even in today's lesson. The scenario is this. The crippled beggar gets up. It's the hour of prayer at the temple in Jerusalem. He gets up and he begins to dart through the temple. And he's running and he's leaping and he's jumping. And everybody knew this guy because he had been sitting at the gate of the temple for years and years and years, we believe. But he goes through the temple. He's running. He's jumping. He's, he's celebrating. And, and, and everybody knows, wait a minute, this is the same guy who lay out here crying crippled for so long and now he's running through the temple and he's jumping up and down what in the world is going on and needless to say the entire hour of prayer the schedule for that was probably thrown completely out the window and everybody is amazed and perplexed at this and no one questions the authenticity but there is questioning revolving around how this happened it goes like this, that the religious leaders came and they got Simon Peter and they got John and they said, we need to have a conversation with you all about this. We need to talk about this and, and, and we need to figure out what exactly is happening, what's going on here, because this is something that can't merely just be brushed under the rug. And they knew that these men had connections with the man named Jesus who had claimed to be the Messiah. So after a brief conversation, they throw them in jail overnight and they essentially say, we'll deal with these guys and with this situation in the morning. Now, as we continue through the narrative of Acts, we see that that's not the case. That when the church faces persecution, it's instantly dealt with. So we read from that that at this point, early in the narrative of Acts, we find out that the church was not really perceived as a threat to the religious world or to the outside world. It was just kind of, what are these people doing was the perspective, but it was not perceived necessarily as a threat. And we know the next day, the religious leaders come along and they begin to quiz Simon, Peter, and John, and they begin to ask them questions. And they said, how did you do this? By what name, what means, what power, what authority did you accomplish this miracle? And Simon Peter is just like chomping at the bit. He said, I cannot wait to answer that question. So he gives a little uh, discourse on Jesus to the religious leaders, and they're, 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 it doesn't really sit well with them. So they just kind of say, uh, you know what, guys, we're not really going to do anything to you, but just, just go on about your way and just be quiet and just try to try to stay under the radar again they were not yet perceived as a threat to the Jewish world nor to the outside world and then all of a sudden, the crippled man comes running through the courtroom scene. I mean, he's still rejoicing. He's still running. He's never been able to walk his entire life. Scripture specifically laid that out for us. And he's running through the courtroom scene, and the, the entire official business conduct had been completed there. But it's like they had to go back through the entire thing all over again. So trial number two begins, but it ends in the same way. But I told you that in that moment, everything 
everything up until then had been rather positive for the church. Mysterious, yes, but positive, yes. But all of a sudden there in the fourth chapter, it was as if that black cloud of negativity just kind of rested over the minds of those early believers and over the lives of those early believers. They're tried not only once, But they're tried twice. But as I told you last week, they understood that just as God was with them in the upper room, He was with them as well in the courtroom. And so the the second trial, the the informal trial that came on the heels of the ending of the formal trial and the crippled man running through the trial at its its, uh, conclusion, all of that ends with the religious leaders instructing these men to not say anything about Jesus. They basically said, we're going to let you guys go. We're not going to incarcerate you. We're not going to imprison you. But listen, you've got to be quiet. Now, I know this morning that it is absolutely impossible to keep somebody quiet who has truly experienced Jesus in their recent past. And Simon, Peter, and John say, hey, whatever you want to do, but we're not making any promises. And so this moment of negativity ends in a beautiful resolution. And I know we uh, are not necessarily covering the fourth chapter today, but for uh, recollection's sake, I want to go back into that fourth chapter. And I want to remind you how this story concluded, how it resolved. So we go from courtroom experience to courtroom experience, and then all of a sudden, this is the church's reaction. Chapter 4, verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And not one of them claimed that any possession belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land and houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. And they would lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would distribute to each person as he had need. And then we get specific once again. Now Joseph a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas. That's how we're going to recognize him through the entire remainder of the narrative of Acts. We're not going to talk a lot about Barnabas today, but he's going to be a key figure in the coming weeks. Barnabas, whose name is translated the son of encouragement. This is the guy that no matter how down and out you were about yourself, you hang around Barnabas and he's going to encourage you. He's going to lift you up. We have ideas that make us believe that Barnabas was probably one of the older believers who embraced Christianity. He was probably twice the age of Paul when Paul comes into the scene and becomes a great friend of Paul, at least temporarily for certain. This man named Barnabas begins something. He makes a bold declaration that's going to just absolutely transform the church, but it's also going to present for us a rather difficult dilemma that we're going to discuss this morning. Here's what Barnabas did. He had a track of land Now, one very uh, genius scholar that I study under some in preparation for these lessons made the assumption that this track of land that Barnabas owned was probably off on an island somewhere. It was probably a, a shoreline property. It was probably not where he lived, not his residence, and believes that this property could have valued in modern terms triple digits, perhaps $100,000. And this man, Barnabas, sells that property and he brings every bit of the proceeds of that property, possibly six digits, and he lays that 
at the feet of the apostles. So imagine this for me, if you will. They, they, have, they have survived this very difficult scenario. They have went from mountaintop, mountaintop, mountaintop experience, and then all of a sudden they're under a black cloud, they're living in a courtroom, and they're being tried because of a good thing they did because they offered hope to someone who otherwise had no hope whatsoever. And man, just what that would do to your mind. And then they reconvene after those two trials and after they are strictly told do not speak in the name of Jesus again they reconvene and they are more together they are more unified they are more purpose driven than they have ever been thus far in the storyline of the book of Acts so much so that they said you know what there is nothing that we own that is worthy of hanging on to if it can further the cause of Christ I think that we cannot argue his historically nor biblically, that as difficult as persecution is, and as much as I hope and pray that we don't have to face any more persecution in this nation than what we already have in the previous months, we know historically and biblically that persecution fuels the flames of revival for the church. And these men and women walked away and they said, you know what? We are all in. We are selling everything. We're going to give up everything and we're going to completely commit to this cause. How beautiful of a resolution to a rather difficult dilemma that now they've went from trial, they've went from being told to never speak in the name of Jesus again to this attitude, an ideology that says we own nothing, but everything is his and we are his. Now you would think that this would lead into another positive experience, that this would somehow uh, evolve into some incredible opportunity for the church. But you see, those of us who serve in ministry or if you've walked with Jesus for very long at all, or if you've been around the church for very long at all, you know that there is no matter how hard you are working, no matter how much you are laboring, no matter how great the harvest field is, it seems as if there is always an antagonist, a, a naturally negative force working in the darkness, attempting to undo every good thing that you have done. And as we enter into the fifth chapter of the book of Acts, we see the re-entry of such. We see the re-entry of this dark cloud that was uh, present in the first part of the fourth chapter in the courtroom. It re-enters the scene, but something is different because the dilemma in which we will study today does not really, it, it does not really present itself as being an outside force against the church, but rather a force that has entangled itself into the embodiment of the church and will attack from within. Chapter 5, verse 1. The scripture says, after that, after Barnabas had sold his land and after all other people began selling their properties they didn't need and laying the proceeds at the feet of the apostles, that in chapter 5, verse 1, that a man named Ananias along with his wife Sapphira, likewise sold a piece of property. This was not uncommon. Everybody was doing it. And they kept back some of the price for themselves with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of those proceeds, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But get ready, it's fixing to get crazy if you've never heard this story. Verse 3, Simon Peter looks at this man, Ananias, and I'm just going to kind of play this out for you briefly. He looks at this man, Ananias, who has just brought a big fat check and laid it at the feet of the apostles and said, use this to feed the poor, use this to clothe the naked, use this to help the imprisoned, use this to feed the gospel. You know, back then, 
the church had no mortgage debt and uh, responsibilities and, and electric bills and things like that. Every penny went towards furthering the gospel. And this man says all of these things, but Simon Peter looks at him, and in verse 3, he says, Ananias, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine if when we were just taking up the offering a few moments ago, if David Williams had walked around, he passed the offering plate on my row. If David Williams had walked around and looked and, and handed you the offering bag and you put your check in and he looked at you and he said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? I mean, this is just unprecedented, man. And I can't imagine how big around Ananias' eyes got and everybody else is like, Simon Peter, we knew you were a little crazy, man, but what are you doing? This guy's bringing us money to build the kingdom of God. And all of a sudden, Ananias Ananias falls over dead. He's gone. And everybody just looks at each other. What just happened? Peter had said, Ananias, I know that you sold the field for this price, but you really just brought this price to the feet of the apostles to the church. Now, are you lying? Is it the truth? And Ananias falls dead, and everybody's like, what is going on? And then some of the young men of the fellowship they come along, one grabs Ananias' arm on the right side, one on the left side, one a leg on the right side, one on the left side, and they carry his dead body out of whatever place that they were assembled in. And they hang around for a few more minutes, and as if this story could not get any crazier, in walks Mrs. Ananias. Her name is Sapphira. And she's just, you know, probably what I envision happening is the scripture says in, verse, says in verse 2 very clearly and very plainly that they had conspired together to do this, to commit this wicked act, right? They both knew that they were going to lie about how much they gave and what percentage it was of what they sold. So what I picture is Sapphira saying, and ladies, this is no insult to you whatsoever, but Sapphira said, honey, you go on and take the check to the church and I'm going to take the rest of it and I'm going to go to JCPenney, I'm going to hit the Fayette Mall, I'm going to go to Cole. I'm going to go all these places. And she walks into the assembly and she's got a brand new dress on. She's just had her hair did, her makeup, her nails are done. She's got new jewelry on. And she's just walking around like she really is something. And Simon Peter calls her out as if the day has not already been crazy enough. And he says, Sapphira. And she answers and he looks at her and he says, The very men who just carried your husband's dead body out of here are going to carry yours out as well. She falls over dead. And they come and get her, and they pack her out. Now, on its own, this story is, is, is just weird. I mean, it's crazy. But when we try to fit this in the puzzle that presents itself as the finished work of the narrative of Acts, this does not fit at all. Now, I don't intend to lay the issue aside of what happened in Ananias and Sapphira's heart because we're going to deal with that this moment, this morning in a moment. But in order to get to that point, in order to really examine what was going on in Ananias' heart and Sapphira's heart and in Simon Peter's speech and how God orchestrated all this and why God would strike dead people simply for telling a lie and cheating on their spiritual taxes, if you will, why God would do all that, we must ask the question... Where does this fit 
in the narrative of Acts. I mean, the narrative of Acts is so polar. What we read typically in the Old Testament, it is more one about grace. It's about grace that's been extended, first of all, to the Jews, to those who would follow Jesus and embrace Him as the Messiah. And then they would face persecution, and then His grace would likewise sustain them. And then as we're going to progress through the narrative of Acts, we're going to see that same grace is extended to the Gentile world, which would have never been... Uh, never been uh, thought of ahead of time by any Jew, but yet right in the middle of this story of grace and grace and grace and grace and grace, we have an incredible story that mirrors Old Testament condemnation. So not only why did this story happen is the question we must ask, but in order to answer that question, I think we've got to stop uh, for a moment and step back and ask ourselves the question, why did Dr. Luke, the physician who wrote the book of Acts and also wrote the gospel according to Luke, why did he feel it necessary to include this story? I mean, think with me a moment. Had you and I been writing the book of Acts, and we, seen, we, we had seen some of these things happen. Now, Luke didn't come along until about the 16th chapter. But we had seen and heard these things, and we're going to compile a list of everything that happens in the church. This is going to be that one incident that nobody's really talking about much because it's just kind of weird and you just kind of don't understand it. So if I were Luke, I would have said, now, cut the fifth chapter. Cut those first 16 verses. They don't go there. They don't fit in the narrative of the writing. Let's just forget about that, and then nobody would ever even know that it happened. But I believe that its inclusion into this text is so intentional and so incredibly important. As we search out that objective, the first thing we see as we really dig into this text is we see an incredible comparative nature to a very well-known ancient occurrence in the mind. And keep in mind that every believer at this point had a Jewish background. A very popular occurrence, rather ancient occurrence that every single Jew would have known about. Luke mirrors that in his presentation of Ananias and Sapphira and their deceit. If we go back to Joshua chapter 7, we find there a story of the Israelites just after they have came out of the desert and they've walked into the promised land. And if you remember, we actually went through the book of Joshua uh, some months ago. And if you remember, you, there, there's a story of a man named Achan. And Achan was, uh, was just, a, just a regular Jewish guy, and he was going along with everything else Joshua was leading the Jews to do. They conquered Jericho, and Joshua instructed them. He said, listen, guys, I want you to take the spoils. That's all the money. That's all the goods. That's all the fancy jewelry. And I want you to put them in this treasure te chest because everything we take from here is going for the treasury of the Lord. And everybody was in agreement. They said, God is doing something here. This battle at Jericho is our first, but it's not our last. And, and we, we've got we've to fuel ourselves for that battle. And so this man named Achan in Joshua chapter 6 and 7 is taking some spoils that he got from the battle and he's going to go put them there in the treasury of the Lord. But he begins to look at them and he begins to think, man, this is worth so much. And I own and possess so very little. So what if I put some in here? And, 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 and you know, nobody's even really around right now. Nobody would even see me if I did this. So he slips a little bit of the goods into his pocket and he goes back again and again and again. And then he makes a little storage space under the floor of his tent that he and his family lived in. And he is the one and only guy in the camp of Israel who is going against God's instruction. 
But as you can imagine, under the narrative of the Old Testament, the story isn't going to end well. It ends like this, that Joshua and the Israelites go to their next battle at the city of Ai. And they go there and they're utterly, completely defeated. I mean, they get their tails whipped by these guys at Ai right after they had whipped Jericho like nobody had ever seen. And Joshua goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, what's going on? He rips his clothes and rips his shirt and he's just filled with, uh, with, with, with indignation saying, God, what is happening? Why did you forsake us? And God there reveals to Joshua that there's someone living in the Israelite camp who has gone against God's principle. It comes to light. That this man's name was Achan. And so Achan is confronted and Achan does the right thing. He says, I am guilty. I am guilty. And the sense in which Achan is condemned in the Old Testament, they brought him and his family out and they stoned them. And I mean they hit them with rocks until they died. I don't mean the other definition of stone. They got stoned by the Israelite leaders. They're dead. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, a wrong They would end with the death penalty. And you say, Pastor, I know that that kind of sounds like a similar story, but how does that really connect in to the story of Ananias and Sapphira? There's something that happens here uh, that, that, that the naked eye would not really even notice. If you've ever heard of something called the Septuagint, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So Luke, we know who wrote Acts and wrote Luke, was a Gentile, right? Or at least that's, that's the conclusion we come to, that he was not a Jew. He was the only Gentile writer within the New Testament. And so Luke is a Gentile, but yet he is a very learned and educated Gentile. And I believe that there is no accident in what I'm fixing to tell you. Because in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, there is a word that is used in Joshua chapter 7 at verse 1, and it's nosphizo. And it's translated in the Septuagint in Joshua 7 verse 1 to describe that, that Achan acted unfaithfully. Well, guess what Greek word Luke uses to describe What Ananias and Sapphira did in Acts chapter 5, verse 2. Nosfizo, the same one. He is portraying here for his Jewish audience, he's saying the same thing that Achan did that you heard your grandparents talk about time and time and time again in which they taught you as little children. You cannot hide your wrong from God. You cannot, uh, you cannot ab- abandon His principles. You cannot go against His truth and His word. The same word that they would have known and related to Achan's story, Luke uses to describe The actions of Ananias and Sapphira. And we translate it keeping back. Where they kept back a portion of the goods. So what is it exactly that Luke is projecting. Not only to his original intended audience. But to us as well. Is he proclaiming and projecting here. That God has now instituted some type of rigorous draconian legality. With which he will manage and oversee. This new thing called the church. Don't think we can answer that question by looking at that text alone. But as we look at every other occurrence and every other happening in the narrative of the book of Acts, I think we have to stand back and we have to say that is certainly not the answer to this question. But I believe we resolve on this. That the intended emphasis and the reason, the purpose for the inclusion of this story into the narrative of Acts is for the emphasis of personal 
purity. Perhaps God was saying, just as the Israelite camp was defiled by the one wrong of one man and his family who consented. Likewise, our lives as believers under the new covenant are equally as important that they remain pure in their entirety. If this emphasis that is intended here is one of personal purity, then this said emphasis is is, is not about the community. It's not about Simon Peter and John and all of these other people saying we can't have an Ananias and Sapphira in our group because let's face it this morning, if that were the message, Simon Peter would have had no business on the platform. If that were the message today, you and I would have no business being here. But rather the emphasized message is there's no room for an Ananias' heart in the life of a believer. There's no room for Sapphira's heart in the life of a believer. You say, Pastor, is God going to strike me down if I lied about my tithe this morning? I highly, highly, highly doubt it. Not saying you should, but I highly, highly doubt it. But perhaps this reminder is one of the importance of our own personal purity. Remember, at this point in time, every believer in the church was of Jewish background. And perhaps another instance, another occurrence that would have came to their minds was the greatest experience that Israel had ever known historically. Their exodus from the land of Egypt. This was the thing, this was the event, this was the occurrence that every single Jew hung their hat on. Because when they could do nothing, God loved them so much that He sent a Moses to bring them out to communicate with Pharaoh. And He performed miracle after miracle, plague after plague after plague, until Pharaoh said, get those people away from me. And even after that, He he, he destroyed Pharaoh in his effort to try to retake the Jewish people. But that story came not without preparation. Because before all this transpired, God had sent Moses to the people of Israel. And he said, I want you to prepare for Pharaoh to release you. Because here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send the death angel over Egypt. And the death angel is going to strike every single household. And the firstborn of that house is going to die in the middle of the night of unknown, unexpected causes. Their death certificate was not labeled COVID-19, just so you know. Had to throw that one in there. They're going to die of unexpected, unknown causes. God said, but here's your way out. I want you to get a lamb of the first year, a lamb without spot and blemish. And I want you to kill that lamb. And I want you to put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your home. And when the death angel sees the blood, he will pass over that. And I want you to go in your house and I want you to lock the door. And I want you to roast that lamb all night long. And I want you to stay up all night long and feast on that lamb. And you're to eat it with bitter herbs accompanied by unleavened bread. And speaking of unleavened bread, I want all of the leaven out of your house. It is incredible that God would use a common ingredient to describe to his people something they were so familiar with to describe to his people the weight of their sin nature. He said, I want you to spend seven days without any leaven in your house. Don't use it to cook with. Don't use it to do anything. As a matter of fact, it was customary and common. What they did was move every piece of ancient furniture out of their house and sweep the floor until they knew the leaven was gone. 
Leaven is a culinary ingredient that causes bread to rise. It is bitter. It's actually derived from the Hebrew word kametz, and kametz means to be sour or to be bitter. So it's like the ingredient similar, I guess, into what we would call today sourdough bread. And uh, this, this presentation that God is making to Israel here is that your sin nature is bitter in its origin. And it will make you bitter. If you contain sin in your life and you try to uh, uh, cover it with a Christian facade, with a Christ-like facade, you will become one of the most bitter people who walks in these doors. God said, this is what your sin nature is. It's absolutely bitter of origin and it's bitter in what it produces. And it also, just like leaven, it causes you to rise. It feeds your haughty spirits. It feeds your pride. Leaven, when included in bread, would increase volume, but not weight. And doesn't our sin nature really make us think highly of ourselves without any credibility or any reliability? The ancient Jewish woman Every ancient Jew would have understood all of these things when God says, I want you to get the leaven out. Keep in mind, these were people who at that point in time knew nothing about God. And they had just heard rumors even that they even had a covenant with God from their forefather Abraham because they'd been 400 years plus in slavery in a pagan nation. So God is saying, this is what you have to deal with personally, daily. Intimately. This is what you have to deal with. This is your nature. The ancient Jew would have actually used the leavened bread kind of like uh, uh, my wife has at times done what's called a friendship bread. And you, you, you'll uh, let the bread get to a certain point where it's ready to bake. And then you'll take a little piece off of it and you'll save it. And then you'll make the next one and the next one. That's exactly what they would have done with leavened bread. And that as well speaks to the sin nature. They were all cut from the same carnal cloth. Thanks to our predecessors, Adam and Eve, our nature is sinful. Our nature is broken. So at the Passover, God says you have to eradicate all this leaven from your house. And I'm going to do something. Now, I love this fact, and it's so indicative of the character of God, that God did not say, if you don't get all the leaven out of your house, then the death angel is going to hit. No, the only stipulation for the death angel was the blood on the doorpost. But God said, because I'm doing this, I want all of the leaven removed from your kitchen. Sweep the floor of your kitchen, of your living room, of your bedrooms, everything, and get it out. Not so I can do something for you, but because I am doing something for you. I believe that the occurrence revolving around the life and times and the death of Ananias and Sapphira was a strong declaration of God to this brand new infancy thing called the church. I believe it was a declaration to say you must live in a manner that represents who I am. After all, the succeeding verse of this story, I think it's in verse 16, actually says that after this occurrence, after Ananias falls over dead, and then his wife Sapphira falls over dead, that all of the men and women of the church were in great fear and complete awe. 
they're just like, wow. Wow. It wasn't an environment that caused them to question the character of God, but rather one that caused them to have a holy and a righteous fear for who they were and who He was. I think this lesson is best summed up with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is God's? And you are not your own, but you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify and honor God with your body. I don't think it is a risk this morning for God to remove from our fellowship someone who lies about what amount of money they give. Not that that's right. But I think it is equally a risk this morning as it was in Acts chapter 5 for us to harbor things in our hearts, to harbor thoughts in our minds, to harbor ideas within ourselves that do not honor God, that are not, uh, that, that are not uh, becoming of His kingdom work. I think it's dangerous. Because this body is not just mine. It's not just, uh, uh, it's not just for my enjoyment or, or for, for me to serve my family or my wife or my children or the church vocationally. But this body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God is saying, I don't dwell on a mountaintop and I'm not going to meet with a guy and send him down here with two tables of stone to tell you what to do anymore. That's not how we're doing this. But literally, I am dwelling within you. This was a brand new concept that had only come about on the day of Pentecost. Jesus is gone and he promised the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit had arrived and now God is declaring, I live within you and where I am, there is no room for the things that motivated Ananias and Sapphira. And I know in this society that we live in, it is so easy for our minds to be filled with things that are of negative nature. For our hearts to be so filled and so saturated in things that are of carnal nature. It is so easy for us to look and to place ourselves on the own throne of our heart. And say, I am my own God. And you may never, may never utter those bold words, but yet our actions say it so often. And we say, I want to get what I want to get. And I'm going to do this the way I want to do this. But yet Jesus is declaring to us, maybe so softly and so peacefully, that at the name of Jesus, one day you will bow. And every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father and we as believers who have experienced everything that He is that is the life that we are called to live I am not called to live a life uh, that, that boasts of my own personal purity but rather I am called to live a life that says what I, uh, how thankful I am for the privilege to sacrifice for Jesus He who wants to follow Him must take up his cross, a sure symbol of absolute death. Follow him. Apart from Jesus, the cross only meant death. But when Jesus is involved, death becomes life. When Jesus is involved, death becomes life. Would you stand with me as we pray together this morning? Father, we're so thankful.